everyone. Welcome to our newest episode of Community Voice. Today we have Bob Gallagher on the line. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, pleasure to be here. We've actually met in person, which is not something I can say for every guest that we have on the podcast. Bob, you actually gave the keynote speech at our conference in Raleigh last November. Correct. I just wanted to kind of start out by asking you to walk through your background and career before starting Carlisle and Gallagher, your consulting firm in 2002. It would be especially helpful, I think, for me and the listeners if you could kind of designate or place flags in key moments or experiences that were particularly instrumental in your development and your career. Sure. Sure. I'm happy to do that. It was a great uh, conference, the first national conference, and I enjoyed meeting you and your team. And I really appreciate all the efforts that you guys are doing. Consult Your Community is a great effort, and I was fully supportive of it and happy to participate in the first uh, national meeting in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So from a background perspective, as far as I'm concerned, I started off with a degree in management information systems. I graduated from Central Michigan University. That's a um, Mac school up in um, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. What I was studying uh, initially was to try to get into computer science. My concept was uh, if I could get some computer science background and then some business, maybe a business minor. To be honest with you, about halfway through my college experience, they started a new degree called Management Information Systems. And that program was melding the business school and the technology school and the things you would use out of business. And it was a really a great opportunity for me. I got out of school, got a job at the power company, Consumers Power in Jackson, Michigan, which supplies 85% of power to Michigan still today, and um, was working in their IT department uh, at the time. You know, the demand for resources were really hard. Uh, for companies to fill those openings. So I was fortunate. Jackson, Michigan, it's uh, February, uh, in the middle of another long winter, and I got a phone call at my house unsolicited from a a recruiter from Charlotte, North Carolina. That sounded nice to me. So so there was a weather component on it as well. So I got all dressed up in all my rain gear and, and winter gear and I found myself in Charlotte, North Carolina on a February day with a 65 degree with sun peeking through the window on my way from the airport to the meeting. And I was thinking, I better nail this interview because I don't want to, I don't want to go back. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> but anyway, there was a company down here and it was called Computer Task Group. You talk about consulting taking off. If you think back now, we're, we're talking late 80s, consulting industry was really starting to take off. Prior to this, most of the consulting was being done was around accounting and the big eight accounting firms that were doing that type of work. And those firms would might do some advisory stuff, but technology consulting was really taken off because corporate America couldn't keep up with the demand for resources. So I joined a firm that was had an office in Charlotte. I started working on this account down here and was here for a couple of years probably about 18, 19 months, but I was really intrigued by the consulting business and the opportunities that you would come in, work on a couple projects or a project, uh, look for other opportunities to work. And my experience there was I started on a six-week engagement. Once I finished these projects, because I was able to deliver on the projects, I had new opportunities come up. So it was, it was almost 19 months later and they kept finding new types of work. So 
I was intrigued by the business model and I saw the growth opportunities and I was anxious to kind of get in the business side of it, specifically around sales, business development and management of the IT consulting field. And uh, there was a small company that was started in Charlotte, North Carolina that I was introduced to. And I had an opportunity to join this company. It was called SPC. And I, I started with them in Florida because they wanted to expand that office. It was a really fortunate opportunity for me, having come to the Carolinas, not knowing a soul when I got here. And I was introduced to a gentleman named Tom Carlisle who became my lifelong mentor and, and best friend and a really a great business partner for me for many decades. So that company was a smaller based firm, probably in the $3 million range in terms of total annual revenue at the time, but had really good customer bases. And one of them was the banks in North Carolina. The company kind of grew our platform around those core banks that allowed those opportunities to expand. The work that I was doing down in Florida was more around the telecommunication space, GTE, which is now part of Verizon. In 1996, I moved back up to the corporate headquarters in Charlotte and took over all the business development outside of Charlotte. And we opened up markets in Dallas, St. Louis, Richmond, Raleigh, Atlanta, and uh, eventually merged that company with a West Coast firm that was publicly traded called uh, DPRC. This was another inflection point for us since we were a, a company that started off with, when I joined 30, 35 resources, ended up to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 resources across those nine branches we had. Wow. When we merged with the next company, they were publicly traded probably about maybe 200 million in revenue, but it was all West Coast-based. They had a really good footprint on the West Coast. We had a really solid footprint on the East Coast, but we had some infrastructure that we had built. We had some marketing and organizational structure around how we went to market and how we branded ourselves to our customers and people we wanted to recruit and our employee base. With that, we had a little more, even though it was a larger firm, we had a little bit more infrastructure in terms of how we ran it. And so I became the uh, VP of operations for the combined organization. And I was probably about 37, 38 at the time. We had 30 branches around the U.S., continental U.S. It was publicly traded and probably the rolled up company was somewhere in the neighborhood about $300 million in annual revenue. Uh, it was another inflection point. I got another opportunity to work with somebody who was really influential and uh, her name was Mary Ellen Machetti. She was the CEO and founder of that company. And it was kind of ironic. Uh, she was in LA. That company was based in there. And we kind of joked. She also, coincidentally, 10 years before I did, graduated from Central Michigan University and moved out west uh, where I moved south. But uh, we, we still remain uh, good friends. And she was a, a real positive influence on my, uh, on my career and my, and my professional life. Outside of escaping the colds of Michigan and going to North Carolina, it seems as though these kind of formative experiences set you up for, and just to kind of set the stage, right? It's the early 2000s. We've just had kind of this dot-com bubble burst. That seems to me, from what I know about financial history, is, is a precarious time to want to start anything that had to do with IT or IT consulting. Yet, that's when you decided to found Carlisle and Gallagher. Can you walk through that experience? Yeah, and I, and I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, just personal motivations of the moves that I made and the opportunities that I was able to take advantage of were 
wanting to be in a situation where it could influence through my performance, controlling my destiny and my opportunities. And when those opportunities came up, I was fortunate to be around people that supported that. After DPRC, we merged with a, a large company that was out of uh, Detroit, Michigan called CompuWare. They had a software side and then professional services side. And I was running one of the largest regions in the company there for about two years. There were a lot of points that, that happened at that time. And one of them was what was going on internally in that company. Uh, I've had these great experience from Top Carlisle and then Mary Ellen as a CEO. And I wasn't having the great leadership experience at that firm. There's also a business operation in terms of how you run a software company versus how you run a professional services company. There are some operating disciplines that, you know, there are some natural conflicts in there in terms of how you face off with your customer. After a period of time of trying to, you know, fight the battles of doing the right thing for our customers and our employee base, I thought it was time to leave there. So there was a lot of personal issues that made me go in in 2002 and, and to um, consider founding a new company. My personal professional self was not getting the exposure I did, and I didn't feel like um, it was aligned with my uh, really my core business values and how I approached business. So that was a big motivator. I was fortunate to have uh, Tom Carlisle once again in my life say, hey, you're not looking too happy there. And he was you know retired after that merger for a couple of years. And he said, look, let's Let's do it again. Let's do something again. And the market had changed drastically. And to get back to the business standpoint, not so much personal, is when you looked at the dot-com bust, there was a big run-up for um, the Y2K change. It was a date routine change that there was just a lot of high demand for people and doing that. And so there was a huge inflation in bill rates and costs. At the same time, people were considering doing offshore using India, the Philippines, maybe China to some degree, offshoring resources at significantly less money. The cost of a $100,000 resource in the U.S. would have been a fraction of that, you know, $15,000 or less to go to the offshore. So a lot of corporations were using that. So that was happening at the same time. There, were, there was a lot of IT jobs lost through that period of time after the um, dot-com bus and the Y2K. So at 2002, I mean, in April, it's six months in the shadow of 9-11. We're in a, a steep recession. You know, from a personal standpoint, I was at an inflection point where I knew I wasn't in the right place. You know, I didn't want to have to compromise what I was saying and what I was doing to the market. But what I had to do is, with my partner, Tom, is start this business. In addition to this, I should say, I was, in, throughout my period of my life, um, I met my wife on a contract, the first contract I had in Charlotte, and she's got a background in technology and business, and um, she had uh, worked for several years and then spent a lot of time raising her kids. So she was helpful to get our business off the ground as a partner in the firm. She worked our, uh, did our IT and stuff foundationally. And then Tom's wife, Elizabeth, was key because she had a background in MBA and business. So she ran a lot of the financial stuff where Tom handled the operations. So we were uh, somewhat of a mom and pop starting out, but we weren't your typical mom and pop because we had a, a strategy and something that we thought we could bring to the market that would differentiate us. So the opportunity that happened then was that there was a great chasm between the low-end stuff that was going offshore and then the high-end consultings that were being sent to McKenzie, Accenture, uh, PwC, EY, these type of folks. So there was this great middle space that was good that we thought we could fill in that market, providing really good people 
uh, knowledgeable solutions, experience resources. And um, we just had to find our spot to go out there and, and do that. That's what kind of motivated us to start the company then. I think that kind of founder story is really interesting. And, and I also like the mom and pop dynamic of it, although all of you clearly had a level of expertise that kind of almost was a perfect storm for developing a firm like this. So what did the firm primarily focus on as a value proposition for its clients? When you start a firm, you're at, you're at a point, what I call forming the snowball. You're basically trying to do whatever you can to build you know, a talent pool and build something to come to market. The long-term objective and where we ended up being was we wanted to become recognized in the field in, in banking and financial services, where we were differentiated being a leader in that space, providing uh, people with expertise, specific expertise around our practice areas that would serve the bank. And I, I think that was our big differentiator to come to the market and say, when our customers were doing something related to their systems, we understood what they were doing and we understand what the objectives were, the value that we brought to the table is that the people that we built in the organization had already been there and done it for another institution, either as an employee of a bank or an employee of one of the big consulting firms that had been serving the bank. So mm. It was really effective once we got to the point where the brand was was recognized and you know, we got beyond just the people side of it. Um, it really thrusted a lot of energy around the firm and, and led to our long-term success. Another thing I wanted to ask, community is at the core of what we do as an organization, and I also know extremely important to you. But this is a consulting firm located in Charlotte, right? Not New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Obviously, there are several banks and financial services companies located there. But can you speak a little bit about the location and what made it a special community? And maybe also the struggles or advantages that you had attracting talent, not being in kind of your New York or San Francisco or Chicago triangle. A couple of points is, is one is that, you know, Charlotte's the number two center for financial services banks headquarters uh, still today, I think. So um, this is a big hub for that type of business. And then it naturally goes into insurance companies and others. So it's, it's actually a big hub for that in Charlotte. And so there's a great talent pool in this area for one piece. And the locality and relationships were, you know, I, Thomas, I would say we're a big part of us getting off the ground. But let me be clear, our resource pool that we recruited from, we kind of worked off a model that, and we would talk to our customers, is that, you know, you really don't want to limit the amount of talent you can bring to the table within a 30-mile radius of where you are today, mm -hmm. you know, in a, especially in a global economy, but even in a national economy. So we had state licenses uh, across maybe 35 different states where we had employed people that worked on various types of projects. Sometimes we're a project at a time, and sometimes we had long-term relationships with people who might have been living in a state where we weren't located. Charlotte was a great community to do that. There's a lot of talent here. There's a lot of people that want to uh, move into Charlotte and work here just from the cost of living, the lifestyle, the availability of great colleges and universities. So it's, it's really a nice hub for that. And uh, it's a great launch point to serve other customers from here and other locations. I will say that we had a, a very large office in Dallas, Texas, had the same experience there when we had satellite offices in um, New York, smaller one in Chicago, uh, and then out of Jacksonville, Florida. And then we eventually uh, went to the 
far west coast and we kind of hubbed out of there out of phoenix but we did work in san francisco and a lot of other locations one of the reasons i had asked the question there is i think more and more a myopia in terms of where especially college graduates or college undergraduates want to work or feel as though they can work and where the opportunities are and right everyone's going to urban locales and people kind of think bicoastally but there are many communities that have talent that offer a good kind of work life balance that have education etc that you know aren't always thought of in the same discussion as some of these larger cities so you know very much appreciate that perspective let me ask you guys essentially just started it sounded like four person kind of founder team hired up and brought people in uh, from a myriad of different backgrounds. What were the most kind of successful traits that they had and then throughout the firm's life that the people who would be promoted or that you consistently thought of as you know the most dedicated and best employees, what were the characteristics and traits that you would say set them apart? I think the first thing you have to say is like people have to be top performers, right? And so there are a lot of people that can really perform well. And we certainly found that uh, the company was built and scaled at a level it did by attracting some of the smartest, some of the best talent uh, around in the industry. And I would, I would arguably say some of these people, I think, are the best in the industry that ended up joining the firm. So you have to perform well. But what I was going to get to is, is like we hired people that other people wanted to follow. Okay. And, you know, it's beyond just likability. These are people that are trusted advisors that carried long-term relationships with customers that they uh, had developed a rapport in this trusted relationship. And you establish that through an honest way of doing business and an honest way of, you know, selling, servicing, delivering, executing, and then attracting others or building others. And so those are the type of things that were uh, key to us. So, if somebody came in, they had a reputation in the market. The reputation was that people wanted to work with them. They wanted to work for them. And these are the people that when we wanted to join, what we wanted to have was, did they want to be part of our firm and transference of their brand into the company brand of CG? And I think that was the key to our success, attracting people that, you know, actually people like wanted to work with and work for. And I think, you know, as young people in the in consulting business, you hear about, some war stories of travel and here's some war stories about tough projects. But really this is a, from a cultural standpoint and CG was um, a leader in culture consulting magazine ranked as the top uh, 10 companies to work for the last four years that I was there. And uh, one of the things we were ranked highest on was culture. And I think part of it was that when you're in consulting, you like your team, the project team, and maybe the practice area within your firm that you're at, or the account team that's responsible for that. And so there are a lot of different teams that evolve in a great consulting firm that really create those deep relationships that really expand beyond the work experience that makes work really uh, not just enjoyable, but really fun and, and exciting to be part of a winning team. What I would want to ask, actually touching off that, what were some of your favorite moments running the firm, being part of that team, seeing people grow, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of get your perspective on why you kept coming into work and, and kind of the 
differentiating moments for you that you still kind of hold on to and say that made it absolutely worth it? One thing that you take that makes business joyful is to watch people develop professionally. And so we had hired people right out of school or I'd hired somebody that had a career at a bank, for example. We would hire a person and maybe they've got a even a 20-year history at the bank. And they were, I knew them from the projects that we worked with them on, uh, but they found themselves maybe passed over. They're at that manager level inside the bank. Uh, they had good responsibilities, but they were not going to move up. And, they, and their, their career had kind of plateaued. Not that they were coasting, but their career was not, did not have an inflection point. And then to bring them in a firm, open up the possibilities of their scope of responsibilities of signing, building teams, uh, taking care of their team and, and solving customer needs and actually have a new Phoenix, uh, that point of the career. That, that was super exciting to see. I had the same experience when you take somebody out of school and they start different steps and you love to see them. And then we were in, in business 13 years and you know, all of a sudden, eight, nine years later, the person's in a, a room with me talking about our long-term strategy uh, and they've evolved to that. And that's just to watch people uh, evolve profession is, is really a joyful thing about leading business. So I, I would say that would, that's the highlight of, of my experience. You asked what it takes to come in every day. When I went out and found some of these leaders as we were growing our business, the top guys in my leadership team that came in and I say guys, but it's guys and girls, but these were really experienced people. They're very, very smart and in many aspects of the business. Don't be afraid to hire somebody that's smarter than you or you know more talented than you in any way. It's it, as a leader, you and, and I would say collectively, the team of 10 leaders that I had were there. So um, I woke up to make sure that I was doing my job to lead the firm ahead of this leadership team. So it was a big challenge to me to make sure that I'm thinking the right way, thinking long term, you know, for the benefit of, of what we know as our mission as a company. And that was a challenge and definitely woke me up every morning to make sure I was ready for that job. That's interesting. So the intellectual rigor of kind of your team kept you always almost like as a performance pressure, I have to be on top of it and I have to do it right by them, essentially, by showing up and being ready for that discussion. Yeah. You know, when you create an environment where you're encouraging them to challenge uh, where we're going and what we're doing, well, if you do that, you you better be ready to be challenged and, you know, adapt and, and help lead in the right way. So for sure, that was, uh, that was my experience. Transitioning after 12, 13 years, more than a decade, growing this business from the ground up, you and your partners decided to sell the company in 2015. I wanted to ask you about how you collectively, but maybe even more importantly, you kind of personally thought about that decision and ultimately made that decision. That's a great question. And um, it was something that, you know, I certainly put a lot of thought and a lot of effort to. I mean, we kind of fast forward through where this company came from, incubating to a mid-sized organization to the next inflection point. So we had grown the firm. Uh, in doing so, we made sure that we had equity spread across the organization for the key people that were bringing that value to the organization. So as a privately held company, we had a lot of, a lot of stakeholders uh, in our top leadership. 
that was uh, an important point that we all won together. The other thing that was driving me was we had built something special. We had built something that was recognized in the market in that way. And I was only interested in an opportunity that would be, again, a strategic launch from where we were at as a company. It wasn't put out to the highest bidder or one of these type circumstances. Why did we do it in the timing we did it? What we had grown, the organization, by the way, uh, organically with no outside mergers or anything, at an average compounded rate for 13 years of 25% a year. Some years were 100 and some years were, you know, varied, but we always grew uh, every year. The point where we were at with our customer base, servicing the largest banks and financial services institutions in the U.S., we had gained a market share within those customers that we were one of the largest spends for all the big institutions that, you know, the top 10, 12 institutions in the U.S., So to diversify our revenue was going to take either a redirection into another industry vertical or bringing different service offerings beyond the consulting type work that we were doing. Hmm. And that would have been, you know, international capabilities. It could have been partnering or creating an offshore type opportunities to do the pull throughs on the large projects that we were running. We were running projects that were uh, easily 100 person engagements. Okay, and uh, not that we didn't still have smaller size engagements, but we'd always have several that were were large scale. And so it was an inflection point of the firm to say, do we double down? Do we find different industries? My contention that is if if you're a business, you have to be thinking growth. You have to grow. and, And I always say you have to grow profitably in terms of your business. So we had put together some structures and some our next, you know, three-year plan of growth. But beyond that, you know, for the first time in the company's history, we started to see a little bit of shoreline instead of open, open sea in front of us. When you get to a certain size and reputation, you get approached a lot. So there were, my phone was ringing and people were interested in it. And I sat down and had a conversation with the CEO of uh, NTT Data, which is a U.S. subsidiary of NTT out of Japan, but it's run by U.S.-based people, and um, they had a financial services vertical. They had offshore capabilities. They had international footprint. And what we did as we looked at the two companies is that what we were doing was not at all competitive, it's synergistic. And so this took a long time. This is unusual, but I, I, I personally was involved in this, probably this deal for about 18 months. And we were putting the strategic argument about what we were going to do. And what we ended up doing was having CG come on and take over their financial services vertical, basically. Our leadership stayed with the organization going forward. And they took care of um, a lot of people, even when they thought that um, maybe there might be some cost takeouts related to our corporate support staff in terms of finance, HR, or IT, those folks do outstanding work and they ended up leading and getting promotions with the organization. So it was important to me, but we had no negative synergies on the merger, which is highly unusual. Even in a company our size, which was about 800 or 1,000 employees, there were no layoffs, there were no cutbacks, there was nobody lost their job. In fact, there were probably, you know, easily uh, 30 
promotions within six months of the merger. So, and pretty sizable promotions at that. I feel really good about it. I, I think from a strategy standpoint, it aligned to what we said our mission was. And it also left the launch pad for us, a lot of our, our key leaders to, you know, go to the next level of running. That was a multi-billion dollar firm. And now they're running, you know, divisions that were larger than what we were by a long shot. So the emphasis on no negative synergies, that really speaks, I think, to the quality of the foundation that you guys had built in that. And as you said, it seemed like it took about 30 days, maybe a couple of months and people started getting promoted, which again, just really speaks to the quality of the hires and the development that the firm had. Transitioning now from, we've kind of landscaped, if you will, a lot of your background, career, experience. I wanted to move on to a section that for our organization is something that is obviously very near and dear to many of our volunteers. And that's really kind of career advice for undergraduate students. The foundation of our organization relies on college students who are passionate about helping small businesses in their local community. But we also have college students, like almost any undergrad, who is constantly thinking about getting a job after graduation. Amidst an ever-changing career landscape, they're always looking for advice on people who have gone through transitions and changes, whether it's choosing their major, what field they should go into or not go into. Kind of this fear of making a mistake now that would penalize you for the rest of your career. With that setup, what advice would you give a college undergrad today about managing their career in university right now? The first piece of advice I would give them to say managing your career, you have to go backwards and say, start your career, okay? The most important thing they need to do is get that first opportunity and go out there and do some work and get exposure on it. I wouldn't obsess about what the first job is to any degree in terms of prioritizing where it is located, but you know, it can align with where your strengths are. That's the biggest piece of advice for that first job. I said align it with your strengths and your interests and just get started. You know, managing career after that is go out and get some really tangible experience. And when you're in there getting the experience, if you're in an environment, as long as you're learning and you know when you're learning that you're getting better, right? And you know you're getting smarter about what to do and what to do next. And you'll find yourself a year later thinking, wow, where was I a year ago? You have that same experience as you go through college, don't you? You go in your sophomore year when you arrive on campus, you're already like, wow, look at the freshmen's coming. They don't know. And that goes all the way up until you graduate college, right? Your last year, your senior year, you're like, here come the new guys, right? And you know so much more. Well, it's the same thing in business and it's maybe even hyperspeed. You know, I think within a year you get a lot of experience. So the first thing is get that experience. And that's the building block of whatever they're doing. Get a couple years of something that has some reputation to it, a significant challenge. And I would say, go ahead and take that challenge early. You can always dial your life back. But you, there are different points in your life where you can't necessarily leap forward sometimes. So do that. And I think what you guys do in the community, I've met so many of those people at the event in Raleigh. And I left thinking, if I had a business today, 
I would have a recruiter over in the corner getting everybody's resume because I thought they were a bunch of sharp folks. And I think most of those people, just with the attitude that they all had, that they're going to be successful. I think that's a great perspective. And obviously that feedback is something that everyone in the organization will be thankful for. Now, just a couple minutes till the end, we're going to kind of go into lightning round questions. And we try to keep these to 30 second, 20 second answers, sometimes just one or two words. So my first question, and I actually might want to flip this a little bit, given what I know about your earlier years, but Blue Devils or Tar Heels? Uh, I got to go the heels. My daughter uh, graduated from there. Okay. Okay. Favorite book that everyone should read? Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. Why? <laughs> it's the blueprint that all motivational type books have been written off of. Dale Carnegie research that was done by a, it was his researcher. And it's really about goal setting, visualization. It's really a different, you know, now you look back on it, now it's a, kind of a boring read, but it's got all the foundational things that if you really do apply what it says, you can think and grow rich. You had a crystal ball, could know one thing that's going to happen in the future. What would that be? Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. What would I want to know in the future? Hmm. I don't think I. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know how far I want to go on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you get one mulligan. All right, that's it. Okay. Finally. Finally, yeah. is the American dream still alive? Oh, yes, it is, by all means. You know, I think it is. And I think that people just have to set the goals that they want to do and believe in that if they stay with it, they can do it. It's definitely still arrived. Do you know that 80% of the millionaires in the U.S. are new millionaires? And the billionaires, it's still 60% are all new money. So money turns over all the time. And just the way the system works that trend will continue. So it's just whatever your ambition is. Bob Gallagher, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thomas Flynn, my (laughs) pleasure. I enjoyed it.